Hello, I'm Charlotte Kasseragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous Littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Cécile Pinn and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires Rue Cambon. Cécile Pinn grew up in Paris and New York City. At 18, she moved to London to study philosophy at University College London and went on to do an MA at King's College. Before turning to writing full-time, she worked in publishing in the editorial department at Vintage, part of Penguin Random House. Her work appears in Bad Form Review, an award-winning magazine launched in 2019 by and about writers of colour. She was one of the winners of the London Writers' Awards in 2021, and Wandering Souls is her first novel. It was long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. It is being published in 11 territories in 2023. Wandering Souls is a beautiful book, a haunting debut. It follows three siblings, Anne, the eldest girl, and her two younger brothers, Tan and Min, as they leave Vietnam in the years after the war. Their journey is a perilous one. They lose their parents and four younger siblings as they set out. They expect to arrive in the United States, where an uncle already lives, but after spending time at a refugee camp in Hong Kong, the three young people are relocated in Margaret Thatcher's Britain, a period of great political and societal upheaval. There, they must learn how to build new lives for themselves, while also grieving immeasurable loss. Threaded through this family tale are other voices, ghostly, pragmatic, this is a many-layered novel. Writing in The Guardian, Charlene Theo called it a piercing saga of innocence being rapidly replaced by hard-won experience, adding that it heralds the arrival of an ambitious and promising new talent. The New York Times called it something special, a polyvocal novel, an essay on inherited trauma and a quiet metafiction about telling stories we don't own. I'm so delighted to welcome Cecile to our podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start by asking you about your vocation. Tell me a bit about your beginnings as a writer. I want to know when you started writing, and I think you started writing in French rather than in English. I did. I, I never really thought that I could ever become a writer, but I did always enjoy it when I did it for, for school assignments, you know, creative writing when I was a, a child. And because I grew up, um, you know, going to school in French, um, my first uh, writing pieces were in French. Um and I always enjoyed it, but I think I was quite intimidated by the idea of doing it professionally. So I 
I sort of left it aside for a long time. And when I was at university, didn't really have time to practice that um, creative writing. When I joined the publishing industry, when I was about 21, 22, um, I think it demystified the whole idea of becoming a writer a little bit and made it seem more accessible. This is also the time when I really rediscovered my love of, of reading, uh, especially reading fiction. And I had that idea of writing this this novel for a long time because it's partly based on family history as well. So I think it was always in my mind that I wanted to write about it in some way, but I wasn't sure how at first. I thought maybe I would write about it in more nonfiction way and maybe writing some kind of newspaper feature about the Vietnamese boat people. I just started writing during lockdown uh, this project, not really knowing where it would lead. I was just enjoying writing it and also just pro- processing and learning a lot about my own history and about my own, you know, writing style and and um, and about myself, really. So about one year later, I had a finished manuscript and, um, and here we are now. <laughs> That's very interesting what you say about working in publishing, demystifying the process. Was that because it showed you that in some ways writing is a question of taking practical steps? What was that demystification? I think it made me realize that editors generally were looking for for stories like the one I wanted to tell and and that you know it's it's possible <laughs> the whole process is um uh, is possible you know we not all writers that that I was working on were people who had grown up writing or people who had done creative writing MAs and and so on and and it just made me think that I could do it as well um I think as well, and it it made me, it helped me see the whole process in a bit more of an objective way as well. I thought, so even when I didn't necessarily have faith in my own writing abilities and was filled with doubts, like lots of especially debut writers are, I think I always had faith that, and the there was a bit of a gap in the market for for stories um, uh, exploring the Vietnamese uh, diaspora in the in the UK because I think it's. Um, it's not a diaspora that's been very much explored in, in the literature in, in Great Britain and in, in the Vietnamese, and but also just the Southeast East Asian diaspora. So I was kind of just focusing on that. I felt like we were ready for more stories um, about those lives, and especially post-COVID, you know, there was a big rise in anti-Asian hate. And um, so even when I was doubtful about my writing, I was had faith that this story was an important one that needed to be told. You talked about how important reading has been to you, rediscovering reading. Who are the writers, perhaps both in English and maybe earlier on in French too, that have most influenced your development as a writer? I didn't grow up reading that much because I think I was a very anxious child in lots of ways. So I I grew up reading in French, um, you know, things that... We were assigned to at school, so a lot of Emile Zola, who I really admire, and I think his his realism um, infused my writing in lots of ways. And then Marcel Pagnol and and uh, some poetry as well. But it's really um, again as an adult that I started reading writers like Maggie Nelson, um, Carmen Maria Machado. I think um, was a big influence her her memoir in in a dream house. I love writers who sort of play with style and who use a sort of fragmented narration to talk about um, trauma was a big influence. So Machado and then Human Acts by Hong Kong as well, Max Porter, uh, Jenny Ophel. So I think, yeah, these were all influences on on my work. And now that I have a bit more 
time as well. I really want to go back and, and read more in French again. Those are writers, as you say, who feel confident, I would say, in form, in using different kinds of voices to tell their stories. Was that something you were looking for from the start of writing this novel? Because it does have layers of telling, I want to say, layers of narrative. Yeah. Um, from the get-go, I was quite interested in having that those sort of uh, fragmented narration with different narrators and, and ways of telling a story. I was really interested in the idea of exploring how one event can affect very different people through different generations. And also I, the way I learned about my family history, about my, my mom's history as a Vietnamese boat person, wasn't a fragmented way. It wasn't a sort of story that I was given um, you know, at birth. It's something that I had to piece together through little snippets that she would tell me throughout the years and that my dad or my uncles would tell me throughout the years and, and also through doing my own research through learning more about uh, the boat people by looking up on the internet and, and archives and so on. So I think I wanted the, the book to reflect that way of, of inheriting and of learning um, a story um, through almost like, like doing a puzzle. Tell us about the publication process for Wandering Souls. I think you worked with your agent on it quite a bit before it was actually submitted. Yes, so I, I started the book, I think, in about 2020. Um, I'd written about 2,000 words, which I submitted to the London Writers' Award um, and got a place on, on the program, which meant that from, uh, I believe, January 2021, I was part of this writing group where I would get feedback on my work about every every month or so, which was very helpful in, first of all, helping me take my writing more seriously, because I think at first I just I had no idea where it would lead to. I, I felt a bit, maybe I was just wasting time um, writing this project. But um, so I think having that that award and that structure really helped me um, in setting myself deadlines and as, as just writing more. Um, so I did that for about six months, and then in the summer, by the time the summer arrived, I knew that it needed still a little bit of work. But I had, you know, the draft. I had the story. Um, I had the, you know, the bulk of it. But I just wanted someone else's opinion on it because it, again, it's quite a personal story, and, and I think objective help can always um, help as well. So I submit to about a dozen agents. And I had um, a few offer representations. So then I did some meetings with the different agents and I, I signed with Matt Turner at RCW because I felt like our visions for the book um, aligned quite well in, for my career as well. And, and the way he, he saw me um, grow as a writer was, was quite the same way that I wanted to grow as a writer. So um, I signed with him. And then in August, for about a month, we... We did a bit of editing on the on the book, um, which was mostly, you know, adding a bit more of the, the narrative part of the book, which is the story of Antan and Min, just adding maybe um, a couple of chapters and, and a bit more dialogue and so on, because I was always, I always find those parts the hardest to write. And I think at first I struggled with writing dialogue and, and just making their, their voices come alive. So we did a bit of work on that. And then we submitted to publishers in, in the fall. And um, then we got an offer about the next day that we submitted by a fourth estate, Kishani, who was kind of my dream publisher. So it was really an amazing moment. And I, I, really wasn't expecting to get an, an offer so quickly and it made the whole waiting period much <laughs> much better to go through so we we accepted their offer and then after that we submitted to the US and to some international territories um and again the response um from the publishing industry was was 
beyond anything I, I imagined for the book. So that was quite a, a very joyful, also slightly hectic time. And that took about um, a year to go through the different editing stages and the proofreading and so on. And then the book came out in the UK and US in March. It's wonderful to hear that you perceived, you know, that there was a space for these stories. That was your suspicion. But it sounds like the res- the reception and publication in terms of publishing houses being interested in it. And we'll come to the actual reception of the book in a little bit. But how wonderful to have that sense that you had confirmed that there was a hunger for these stories. Now I want our listeners to have a taste of this marvelous novel. So will you read the opening for us? Okay, sure. November 1978, Vang Tham, Vietnam. There are the goodbyes and then the fishing out of the bodies. Everything in between is speculation. In the years to come, Tian would let the harrowing memories of the boat and the camp trickle out of her until they were nothing but a whisper. But she would hold on to that last evening with all her might, from the smell of the steaming rice in the kitchen to the touch of her mother's skin as she embraced her for the last time. Her mother, she would remember, preparing her daughter's favorite dish, caramelized braised pork and eggs. The French had left Vietnam 25 years prior, but their music still lingered, the yaya melodies filling the homes of the village of Vang Tham. Anne was packing her rucksack in the bedroom next door, debating what to take and what to leave behind. Pack lightly, her father had told her. There won't be much room on the boat. She held her school uniform to her chest, pleated skirt and white shirt whose sleeves were too short for her 16-year-old arms, and placed it in her bag. Thank you so much. I want to ask you now a little bit about your routine of writing. I wonder if it's changed also since you wrote this book, because I believe you were still working full-time in publishing when you composed Wandering Souls. How challenging was that? It was it was a bit challenging. It was very chaotic times. It was also during um, COVID and, and half of it during lockdown. So um, my routine looked something like I would wake up around 9 a.m. and then uh, go to work in my living room at 9.30 a.m. and then work all day probably around until 7 p.m. And then I would take a little break, which was either having dinner watching a TV series, or if I if it wasn't lockdown, seeing friends or going to the gym. And then I would begin writing around 10 p.m. until maybe 2 a.m. or just depending until, you know, how inspired I felt that evening or that night. So it feels a bit like a blur now, and I can't remember fully writing it. Uh, but um, I, I just didn't have a choice. I'm not a morning person, so the idea of getting up at 6 a.m. was just not, not an option for me. So, um, But I, I, so I did that for about six months until I had the, the final draft. But um, So that's how I wrote the first book, and now I'm slowly working on book two. And, I, and you're right that my routine has changed quite a lot. I know it's only been a few years, but when I wrote book one, I was around 22, 23, and now I'm, in, I'm 27 now. <laughs> and, I, and I think there's just, I don't, think I have the energy anymore to to go to bed at 3 a.m. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to to slightly shift my my um 
my internal clock and write during the day. So I usually, and I usually read a lot as well when I'm um, in the process of writing a book. So I, I usually go through a period for a few months when I just binge read. I'm not, I'm not really picky about what I read, but it's just about getting inspiration um, and trying to figure out the, the tone and the, the energy I want the book to have. And I'll try and listen to some music as well that has that, that energy. And then once I've done that, I'll I'll start writing. You talk about reading everything that comes your way just now, but for this book, for Wandering Souls, you must have had to do significant research for it. Tell us a little bit about that and also about your decision to settle your characters in the United Kingdom rather than in the United States. Um, so the process of writing the book was was research indeed. Um, it was during lockdown, so I couldn't go to the library, but the there are some a really great resource of National Archives online, um, which I looked at and which I included in the book. Uh, for example, some meeting minutes um, where you can see Margaret Thatcher's reaction, sort of behind-the-scene reaction on the refugee crisis and a, and a letter she wrote to a little Vietnamese boy who was um, at a camp in the UK. So I, I really wanted to, to include those documents and kind of set the book um, in the real world as well. Um, I decided to set the book in the UK because, first of all, it's where I've been living for almost 10 years. Then also because I think there are a few stories of, of Vietnamese boat people set in the U.S. People are quite familiar with the with the history between Vietnam and the U.S., but um, a bit less so between Vietnam and Great Britain. Um, and I didn't want to set the book in France either because um, I think for me it was a way of separating between my story and my mom's story and 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 fiction, and I wanted the characters to be their own um, beings. I didn't really want them to be based on on my family. So I and I think by changing the setting, it it, it kind of radic- radically um, changed that as well, and and made the story fictional for me, which was I think even just mentally um, a bit of a relief for me. Um, so it was a lot of going online, doing looking at national archives, looking at video and photographic evidences as well, just to get the description of the camps right and and of how the UK was in the 80s as well, just to get the visuals right. And then looking at some essays online as well. But there's there wasn't that much um, written about about the Vietnamese boat people population in the UK. So a lot of it was also going on Facebook groups. And looking at testimonies of refugees who had spent some time at refugee camps as well, and just just getting inspired and and um, just trying to gauge how it was. And some of how it was, of course, was extremely difficult. And this book deals with challenging and upsetting subjects: the sexual assault of refugees, for instance. How did you manage? assimilating this material, conveying it so beautifully in the book, and I want to say protecting yourself. Yes, I was always very conscious that I didn't want to just write a trauma story, and I wanted the book to feel quite hopeful um, when you finish reading it. And um, it was hard, especially I think the first half of the book deals with, as you said, the sexual assault and the horrible things that the refugees had to go through on on the journey. I think I listened to a lot of upbeat music, <laughs> a lot of disco when I was writing those things and I was watching RuPaul's Drag Race and, and just to try and get my 
my brain, you know, kind of stabilized how I was feeling. So it was lots of ups and downs. And also, I think the rest, the, the weight of the responsibility of what I was doing was tough at times. And I, I really, it was hard for me to decide how much of, of the traumatic events I should put in the book and how much should be left. And just feeling that weight of, of trying to tell the, the story as respectfully and as as truthfully as I could as well. Um, but I think I had to trust my instincts a bit there. And um, I talked a bit to, to my mother and to my family, and, and um, I was just kind of trusting that my intentions were pure and that um, hopefully that would reflect in the book as well. So your family were supportive of this journey along the way? They were, yeah. They were uh, very supportive. Um, you know, I, I never hid it from them that I was trying to write this book, and, and I, I think... Um, you know, for my family, it was the sense of turning a horrible event into something positive as well and, and making something good come out of something horrible in a way. They wrote the book um, a few months before it came out and um, they had some lovely things to say, which was a really big relief because I was very stressed out about their, their reaction to it. But um, it's been a very uh, positive experience. Tell us a little bit about the origin of the novel's title, because that's a striking story. Sure. So uh, the title Watering Souls comes from a real-life um, psycho- psychology war operation that the U.S. Army undertook during the Vietnam War, which was, which played on the Vietnamese belief that if you don't bury your dead properly in their hometown, then they won't be able to rest and they'll be left to wander as ghosts um, for eternity. And so what the U.S. Army did during the war, which was that they would play in the jungle those tapes, uh, which you can listen to online. Um, it's called Ghost Tape Number 10, uh, which were supposed to mimic the sound of diseased Viet Cong soldiers. And they would sound a bit airy and they would, um, the soldiers would say things like, uh, comrades, like, go home, like, don't end up like me and, and things like that, which is a very strange um thing to do, a very strange operation. Uh, and I remember when when reading about it, just being so so struck by that. And I love that when readers read the book, a lot of them don't necessarily know that it's it's true. A lot of people think that I made it up. And, and I also like the idea in the book of mixing truth and uh, fiction and, and letting the readers decide if they want to make that extra step of, of looking up online to see what's true and what's not um, as well. But um. And so I, I picked that title um, as well because I like the idea that there are different ways of being a wandering soul. And I think all the characters in the book in some way are wandering souls. You've got Dao, one of the narrators who's, who's their diseased little brother and who is following them in a place in between the living and the dead um, and the beyond. And then you've got Anten and Min who find themselves in the UK um, without their parents and they're not exactly sure which direction their life should take. And I think they are wandering souls in a way as well when they arrive in the UK. So I just thought this this title was quite um, a good uh, representation of, of the different characters in the book. Before we move on to the reception of the book, you know, I'm always thinking of who's listening to this podcast. And I think we have a lot of aspiring writers, you know, who listen. What's the hardest thing for you about the process of writing? Because I think people read published books and think writers turn them out and it's all easy. What's what's the challenge for you in writing? 
I think it's always hard to put yourself in a position when you have to forget about the readers and you have to write what feels true to yourself and what you want to write, um, while also knowing that you're writing in a way if you want to write professionally for for readers. And I think finding that that balance is a bit hard in trying to to write a book that you think people will like and people will enjoy while also staying true to yourself can be a bit challenging um, at times. I want to turn now, as I said, to how the book has been received and how you think about the book. You wrote this novel, as you said, during the pandemic, during lockdown. At that time, as you also mentioned, there was a rise in anti-Asian hate and attacks against people of Asian descent. Did that change how you thought about the book, how you thought about your own heritage and how the book might be received? I think in a lot of ways, the rise in anti-Asian hate was a bit of a, a trigger for me to wanting to explore more about my heritage and my, my Vietnamese identity, because having grown up in the West, I felt somewhat disconnected from it. Uh, I think when the rise in anti-Asian hate happened, that triggered in me the, the want to just learn more about that side of me that had been a bit in the in the background for a long time. Um, and it's through doing that research and learning more about the history of Vietnamese boat people that I really decided to, to write the book. And it felt like people needed to learn more about it because I think the more we, we talk about, the more the Vietnamese diaspora and the East Southeast Asian diaspora is seen and represented in books and movies and TV series and so on, the better that is and the more accepting and people become because at the moment I think that sometimes um, we can be othered a little bit, especially in the UK, because we're not present enough um, in mainstream media. And, uh, and I'm, I am sensing a bit of a shift recently. You know, obviously at the Oscars, we had Kei Hui Kwan, who's a Vietnamese person himself and and there's lots of really great writers like Wiswarton and Nicola Dinan um, of Southeast East Asian um, backgrounds with books coming out this year in the UK so I, I'm sensing a shift in the right direction and I'm really proud as well and, and humbled that my book explores that diaspora a little bit as well. Wandering Souls is based as you've said on your family's story. How did it feel for some aspects of that story to come out into the world through this novel, even though they have been transformed, of course, into fiction? It's been, I think, very um, cathartic in a way. And also, uh, it's been very amazing to have readers uh, come up to me who have a similar background to me and who haven't really seen that story told and who I think there's been a growing sense of community for me as well. And I've been able to connect with with other, uh, you know, sons and daughters of Vietnamese refugees and, and so on. So I think that's been very incredibly gratifying. And I've, I've really felt the love either from my family and, and from readers as well. So that's been because I was very nervous at first what the what would be the reaction of, um, you know, other uh, sons and daughters and, and uh, Vietnamese boat people. And it's, I think um, it's been yeah a, a very big relief. That leads to my next question, really. I was going to ask you whether there have been any reader responses that 
really meant something special to you? Maybe particular responses, people reaching out to you? Was there anything that really struck you? Yeah, I I remember I was doing a bit of a video um, interview, um, I think maybe a, f- a few weeks after publication in the the filmographer, uh, who I think was didn't really know what, what he was filming that day or something, came to see me after the, the shoot and said like, oh my God, like Cecile, like this is my my mom's story. This is like, my mom also came from Vietnam and and he sort of said, like, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> like, I thought, I didn't know there were others. And then I signed him a copy of the book and he said he was going to to give it to his, his mom. And he, you know, you could tell he was a bit shaken. And I, I think that was a, one of the responses that uh, has really stayed with me because I feel like if I got one reaction like that, then I've kind of done my job. And it, it gave me a bit of a, a confidence boost as well in knowing that that I had done the right thing in, in writing this book. So it was a very, very humbling and moment for me. Uh, and I've had a few others since then as well uh, had a, have a similar reaction. So it's, I always get quite emotional when I get those, those kind of reader responses. That's really lovely to hear. We now have a few questions that we ask all of our guests. So I'm going to start on those now before we close. The first one is... What is the most surprising thing you've learned from being a writer? I think just how much goes into being a writer besides just writing the book, right? So there is the whole um, more public-facing side of being a writer, which I'm still learning, (laughs) which is the whole publicity and and learning how to talk about your book once it comes out into the world. And it, in a way, it's not quite only yours anymore, and it becomes the public's as well, and people will have their opinions on the characters and on, on the story. And um, just learning how to talk about it and to, um, you know, especially as, as a, lots of writers, um, I'm quite an introverted person. <laughs> but it's also been really lovely to um, go to events and doing interviews and and talking about it, but I think that that's what surprised me the most is that I I didn't fully realize or or thought about the um, that side of being a writer. More surprise now in the next question. What would people be surprised to learn about you? When I was at university, I I did some film extra <laughs> to to kind of finance my my life. So. I think you can see me very briefly in in one of the Spider-Man movies that came out recently. (laughs) Very good. Fun fact. (laughs) What is your idea of perfect happiness? For now, it's just a sense of calm, I think, and just having, you know, a room of my own and with a desk and just being able to write my book. and, And I'm already very privileged to be in the position where I can do this full time and not feel like I have to rush my writing in between the early hours of the night like I did for book one. Um, so just just that and having a healthy family and all those things. Yeah, just that sense of calm in my life is is happiness for me. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity in whatever way? It's an advice that a, um, a writer gave me, which is to that we always get kind of put into boxes as writers, whether you're an author of color or a young author or an author from a certain country. And it's important to not limit yourself 
uh, to that box and to really think that you you have the freedom to be influenced by whoever you want, by you can read whoever you want and you can write whatever you want really and not to feel the pressure of, of of that box and of writing what you think people expect of you um, or created the art that people expect of you. And I think hearing that advice was very liberating for me. And, and so I, I just wanted to pass that along. I like that. In one word, how would you like to be remembered as a writer? Generous, maybe. I, yeah. <laughs> I like that. And our final question, if you can say a little bit about it, what would you like book two, your second novel, to look like? Uh, so I, I'm still in the early stages of working on it, but I I think it's going to be less personal. And <laughs> I think the, the uh, Wandering Souls was obviously a very personal book, and and I want the freedom to write a book that has nothing to do with me <laughs> in some some way. Although every book has something to do with it with its writer, obviously. But um, so I think it's going to be more contemporary and maybe explore a bit of a love story. Um, I'd like to just keep challenging myself and I, I'd love for the book to also have a bit of a fragmented structure like book one, but I'm still trying to figure out how best to implement that. Um, so, so yeah, I think a bit more romance in this one, but um, we'll see. Still, still trying to figure out the exact plot of it. <laughs> well, I am looking forward very much and... The only way to figure these things out, of course, is by doing them. So I hope you enjoy the process very much, but you have eager readers waiting. I now just want to thank you so much, Cecile Pinn, for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we have the chance to talk again soon. I, Again, I can't wait to read your next book. Thank you so much, Cecile. Thank you so much, Erica. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt!